welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, Anna Chizinski, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with my fact, my fact this week is that on July the 13th, 1930, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle headlined a show at the Royal Albert Hall despite having died six days before. Did he get booed? You couldn't be booed off stage, could you? You, <laughs> you mean died in a physical sense, not died in had a really bad gig sense. Yeah, so basically what happened is that six days previous, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had actually died. And his family were very spiritual, and they knew that they were going to be reunited with him in some way. And they thought, why don't we put on effectively a family reunion gig at the <laughs> Royal Albert Hall? And they did it as a partial memorial as well. So it was billed as a memorial. However, the star bill at the top was that there was going to be a clairvoyant <laughs> coming along. There was going to be an empty chair on the stage at the Royal Albert Hall. And his spirit would be summoned to give a message to say, it's all good. I'm on the other side. And it was, right? It came, it rocked up. It showed up. Six And 6,000 people came to see it as well. Yeah. 6,000 people crowded the Albert Hall. Some numbers put it up at 10,000, but apparently it doesn't seat that many or stand that many. If you fit ghosts in, then yeah. presumably it's got a theoretically infinite capacity. <laughs> no, I don't want to be Captain Skeptical, Anna, but what do you mean he turned up? Oh, well, we've, we have recorded evidence that he turned up. What I read about it is that um, the, the, the medium, Estelle Roberts, uh, claimed that she'd seen Doyle sitting in his chair uh, and she conveyed a message from him, but apparently only his wife heard it and everyone else was overpowered from a message blast on the organ that was playing <laughs> it was an oddly timed blast of organ <laughs> to mean that no one else could hear what was being said was anyone playing the organ or was it a, an organ played by a ghost <laughs> there was an organist build on the uh, on the actual play bill, okay. so yeah so it wasn't a ghost <laughs> blast was. no it was just the organist being an idiot uh, no, I think the idea is that they wanted to keep the message in the end a bit private, and so they did that. It's really odd. The, the total moment that everyone waited, like, yeah, two hours for it. it's absolutely bizarre that they try and cover up the clear words of Arthur Conan Doyle speaking from beyond the grave. Yeah. Um, just quickly, the medium, Stell Roberts, she had a uh, spirit that she used to talk to called Red Cloud, who was a Native American. He wrongly predicted that World War II wouldn't happen. <laughs> and that it would all be fine. He said that, and then obviously he was wrong. And But they did manage to catch him on photo once or twice, but it turned out always to look exactly like her wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> Weird to predict that World War Two won't happen. Yeah, it's weird, what a that, very isn't it? specific, yeah. unnecessary, well, yeah. specific prediction. I think a lot of people predicting it might happen, and Red Cloud was like, "No, it'll be fine." <laughs> Conan Doyle's spirit guide said the opposite. So that Conan Doyle and his wife Jean, they had their own at their home in Sussex. They had a spirit guide called Phineas, uh, who mm. and I'm quoting here regularly predicted global catastrophe. <laughs> 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 and he also advised them on when they should move house and things like this. Um, supposedly, on one occasion, Jean asked the local station master to reschedule a train that Arthur was going to take because her spirit guide had said it'll be better if the train's moved, actually. I think it might have fitted with and her did diary. Did they reschedule better. it? Uh, I don't know. 
Because he was a popular man, you never know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know, when yeah. he was a doctor before uh, he became a writer and he had almost zero patience. His first one when he set up in Portsmouth was a man who walked in and so Conan Doyle said, oh, come in, come in, really excitedly, showed him straight into his um, consultation room, sat him down and said, I can tell already by the way you're coughing that you've got some bronchial problems. And the man said, no, sorry, I'm just coughing because I'm a bit nervous. I'm here to collect the gas bill that the previous tenant didn't pay off. <laughs> <laughs> And thus the Holmes method was born. <laughs> so Conan Doyle very famously believed in fairies and he believed in contacting the dead and all of his family were very much a part of the same belief system. There was a Time Magazine article that was published on the 21st of July. It was basically reviewing the gig, but it was also giving the background in the lead up to it. So they said that when Conan Doyle died, this is the words in the article, Sir Arthur's family cheerfully buried him because they were like, well, we'll see him in a few days anyway, so that'll be fine. And it was really interesting. In the period between the gig happening, they got lots of messages from people saying that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had got in contact and left them messages. And the son said we believe the people that they're not lying that spirits got in contact but their spirits themselves are pranksters on the other side and Classic. people are like what do you mean he's like there are prankster spirits who are pretending to be conan doyle and it's not our dad it's it's just someone else this is i think this is a quite a pervasive thought about for people who believe in seances and about spirits mm. that there are a lot of pranksters there's a really excellent book by hillary mantel one of her earlier books called beyond black where the idea is that um seances are all haunted by these bastard pranksters who are always just throwing shit at you and pretending to be your dead mum and then biting you in the face and stuff but you would only really need one ghost to exist and he could do the voices if it was like a John Culshaw ghost or something who could do the voices <laughs> of all the dead people who are ever there if there's just one prankster. Well, the th so the thing about the mediums getting it wrong, this was a huge part of the relationship between Doyle and Houdini, Harry Houdini, yes. uh, the escapologist. They were friends and Doyle believed and Houdini didn't and Houdini spent a lot of his time cheerfully unmasking fraudulent mediums and then Doyle talked Houdini into going to a seance because uh, Doyle's wife was a medium. And she said, Houdini, I've got great news. I'm in contact with your mother who's died. And they talked him into it. And then he went along. And then Houdini's mum wrote a 15-page message to Houdini. Unfortunately, it was in perfect English, whereas Houdini's mum spoke almost no English. Uh -huh. yeah. oh. And it opened. started with the sign of the cross. Yeah. And Houdini's mother was married to a rabbi. And it was just... Yeah, it, it wasn't was, very well done. It wasn't very well done. And that did break up their friendship, really, didn't Completely. it? Which is a shame, because they had one of these very good sparring relationships where Houdini was constantly trying to convince Conan Doyle that he wasn't magic, and Conan Doyle was constantly trying to tell Houdini that Houdini was magic. Mm. And then they sort of really <laughs> fell out over this. Well, so you just properly didn't believe him that these were tricks? Yeah, he, he kept doing. saying, Harry, honestly, you've got amazing powers. Embrace it. And Houdini's <laughs> going, no, this is how I do it. Um, but yeah, he called Conan Doyle's beliefs hogwash and apple sauce, wow. which mm. I enjoyed is insults um before he was a uh, an escapologist he um was the wild man and he would live in a cage and eat pieces of meat what's he <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was he was he and his wife were absolutely broke and they had to do anything they could to get work so that was one of the acts that he had oh my god would he then break out of the cage using <laughs> no, that was no, the thing. no oh my god um so have you heard of marjorie crandon no She's one of the best ever fraudulent mediums. And Houdini <laughs> had this huge vendetta against her. Um, she performed very scantily clad. And on one occasion, supposedly, she emitted ectoplasm from her vagina. Mm -hmm. yeah. As you did. As you do. <laughs> That's kind of what happened. Yeah. Well, one, was she embarrassed by that? Or I don't think so. Because usually it comes from your ear or your nostril, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it basically comes from anywhere you hide it. Yes. So you get a load of ectoplasm and it's made out of egg whites and... 
wood chip or whatever, and you hide it in your various orifices mm. around your body, and then it comes out of there. Wood and chip? So I think it's made of wood chip, is it like not? sawdust. Sawdust. Really? Marjorie yeah. supposedly had some made of butcher's offal, which she was pulling mm. out of. I mean, it's... I'm yeah. imagining butcher's offal is like intestines. Yeah, yeah, Like yeah. you would pull um, flags out of um, a top hat or something. Yes. Did if you she replace do that? the flags <laughs> with lamb's intestines and the top hat with a vagina, that's exactly... <laughs> I'm never booking that lady for my children's party again. <laughs> um... So yeah, so Houdini cancelled his own shows to travel across the country to attend her seances and try to debunk her. Um, I found a really cool seance thing. The connection between Alcoholics Anonymous and seances. Mm -hmm. So Bill Wilson, who's the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, he was massively into seances. He used to go to them all the time. And he had in his own house, he had a spook room. And the spook room is where he would go into, and that's where he'd chat to spirits. And actually, he claimed uh, that the famous 12 steps uh, yeah. that Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous has, um, he actually, <laughs> he, that got, he wrote this in his autobiography as well, that he, led, uh, he got led to creating that as an idea because he was talking to a 15th century monk called Boniface. Oh, yeah. yeah. Boniface. Saint, Bo- Saint Boniface. Pope. And that's yeah. why step number seven of the 12 is woo <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so he um, and so it was the idea of sitting around in a room around a table and and sharing things, and that led to a very similar uh, situation for Alcoholics Anonymous. He really, was, I yeah. didn't know that. Um, do you know who named Ouija boards? Parker Brothers. No, Ouija boards named Ouija boards. So Ouija boards were <laughs> they became <laughs> they became quite popular. Seances became very popular in the 19th century, and people started using something like a Ouija board in about the 1880s. But it didn't have a name. And of about four investors got together in 1890 and decided, you know, they had to find out a name for the Ouija board. So they called in their one of their spiritualist sisters, and they gathered around it and they asked the Ouija board, "What do you want to be called?" And it spelled out Ouija. So the, the fact that it's also the words for yes in French oh, no, and German. That really is irrelevant, I think. Oh, okay. I think that's a myth. That's a no, myth. you're right, Anna. Your theory is much better. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the truth was that the woman, the spiritualist, who said that the board had spoken to her was wearing a locket at the time, a picture of a woman who was called Ouida. Uh, so it's thought that she got the idea from that I've never done a Ouija board me neither I've never done any of this stuff it's too scary Mm. (laughs) that's that's not quite the reason I haven't done it Um, they used to use Ouija boards for contacting alive people mostly didn't they during World War One, I think they were used to contact soldiers on the front so families would say how's it going over there and then the soldier would supposedly talk to them were they not rumbled when their sons came home from war and their mum was like, how dare you speak to me like you did last year? <laughs> Mum, I, I believe you've you lost flung it. all that ectoplasm across the room. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even know you had a vagina. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Chuzinski. My fact is that Dutch trains are fitted with lasers to fire at leaves on the line. That is amazing. Um, Is it how (laughs) I imagine? So it's like, I'm imagining actually a steam train at the moment, but Uh it's got a massive laser on the front. (laughs) <laughs> and it's firing like green lasers at, mm. and then kind of vaporizing them. Yeah, it's and just it, like that. It also makes the noise. Pew, 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 yeah, pew. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's that. It's got a giant pair of eyes shooting lasers 100 meters ahead. Wow. Um, no, Great it fact. hasn't. Sorry, guys. <laughs> this is, they're a little bit smaller than that. It's definitely the same principle, but they're um, <laughs> tiny little lasers that are attached to 
the wheels and they just shoot and vaporize leaves on the track just in front of the wheels. So they're quite small, but this is still in trial stage, I think, and it started in 2014. And it's because leaves on, on the line is a massive problem and it's just a more efficient way of cleaning them up. So other ways of getting leaves off the line, like jets of water or jets of sand, cause a bit of damage to the line. And because lasers have a really tiny wavelength, they get absorbed by the leaves, but they, the rails are completely unaffected by them. So you can fire a laser at a rail forever and ever wow. and nothing will happen. I think the first time they started investigating this method was in 1999. Yes. And the original laser burned at 5,000 degrees Celsius and fired 25,000 times a second. But the vibrations of the train meant that it wasn't accurate enough. So that was one of the problems at first. killing (laughs) random (laughs) people. And after thousands of deaths, (laughs) they decided to rethink. No leaves killed. (laughs) Trees prospered as humanity perished. No, this is so. The guy who came up with this idea is a man called Malcolm Higgins, who was a, a Royal Navy lieutenant commander, and he had no experience in lasers and no experience in trains. No, because he was in the navy. <laughs> don't don't use him that much on ships. Um, and he was just listening to the radio one day, I think, and thought, "Leaves on the line. I bet I know what could fix that: a laser." And he looked into it and set up this company called Laser Thor. And it turns out it is uh, better than better than the other methods in a lot of ways. But you're right because of the um, the slight wobble of trains, the lasers sometimes misfired whereas if you fire a jet of water it just gets anything that's in its way Uh. but it's been adjusted for now uh, in the Dutch version and so it seems like it's working like a dream Um, we haven't said why um, leaves on the line are a bad thing yeah, they are. They are. No, but <laughs> no, 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 why? Oh, why? Right, so they turn into a b- black mulch, don't they? Yeah. Sorry, Andy, <laughs> sorry, Andy wanted to say why. I thought you were asking me, but you just wanted to show off that you knew. <laughs> sorry, I should, forgive me for bringing it back to this table. <laughs> Go on. No, no, no. If I, Snooze. If I can showboat for a second <laughs> and read out a fact... Yep, no, take, take the stage. Um, so what happens is, when the le- so it's when you've got a leaf on the line, it's the previous train goes over it and crushes it. The leaves release this thing called pectin, which um, is the stuff that the food industry use, uses as a gel to make jams and jellies. Mm. So that's what happens. So, the train, so it means it slows down the deceleration of the train. So the tra- basically the train can't break very effectively, and that's dangerous, so they have to go much more so slowly. Wait, does that mean that this vaporising by lasers of the leaves is going to reduce the quantities of jam available to us? Uh, I think that jam companies don't <laughs> principally source their jam from <laughs> railway lines. <laughs> the jam harvest every year is little children running <laughs> along <laughs> railway lines, Imagine scooping up the mulch. On the supermarket show, you've got strawberry... Raspberry train. (laughs) (laughs) So they are a huge problem. And I do feel bad for things like Network Rail because we take the piss. But um, I think 4.5 million hours of passenger delays roughly a year are caused by leaves on the rails. Um, The cost of repairing tracks because of leaf issues or repairing trains is 10 million a year. And then another 5 million for the vegetation management. And the only reason they were there in the first place is because people who were building railways wanted to protect people who lived nearby from the sounds. So they planted lots and lots of trees next to them. Ah. And turns out that was a real ball ache. You know, these aren't the only lasers that are used on trains. There's another train that shoots out lasers uh, that we have in the UK. It's called the Flying Banana. (laughs) What? Uh This is an Arthur Conan Doyle hallucination. No, this is real. It goes all the way up and down the UK rail networks. And what it's doing is checking the quality, so using lasers and cameras, of the tracks. They're making sure that the tracks are just still as strong, still as good. Why did they call it the flying banana? Um, Because it's yellow. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> looks so it looks a bit like a banana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they mean flying and going quickly rather than actually flying. Yeah, so it's it's like not a, sounds like a flying banana to me. Exactly. <laughs> do, we know, do we know if it's curved? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, no, it won't be because uh, how would it go on the tracks? Like the one thing about trains is they have to be straight. <laughs> you can put a banana <laughs> on wheels. So <laughs> it's only the wheels that need to be yeah, straight, absolutely. James. That's true. If you put a big enough axle and gauge on a standard banana, you could have a train that was just a banana on wheels. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. But on the other hand, if you're checking the rail, you really want it to be pretty much the size and shape of a train. <laughs> it's right. too small as well. Bananas, you don't get bananas the size of trains. Well, I'm going to take the example from the Navy man, and I'm going to set up a company. And <laughs> Um, I should say the real name of that train is the New Measurement Train. <laughs> oh, I, can see why they, I can see why they had to come up with a nickname for it. <laughs> but yeah, so it checks strength in the joins and, That's so and cool. overhead cables. And so it just makes mm. sure it's the maintenance train, basically. Yeah. Do you know what the fastest train ever in North America was? Oh, no. Okay, it was called the M497 Black Beetle. And it was basically a normal train that they put two jet engines onto. <laughs> and fired it down the tracks. Cheating. Yeah, well, it is. But for a while, it was thought that they this might be the future. And they did it in Russia and they did it in America. Um, but the problem was, basically, if they crashed, everyone died. Yeah. Wow. So it was, it was in- incredibly dangerous. Um, mm. But they did go really fast and they do technically work. Isn't that how all trains work? That if they crash, everyone dies? No. no. How they work. <laughs> you, you think everyone's died in every single train crash that's I always been. make sure to get off before the last stop because I assume it just goes into a wall. <laughs> well, we've <laughs> talked about dies. the phrase, haven't we? Getting off at Gateshead. No. We're, getting off at Gateshead is uh, slang for the withdrawal method in sex because Gateshead is the l- second last stop on the line yeah. before Newcastle. Uh, okay. I thought it was for premature ejaculation. Uh, I think that's being thrown off the train at Gateshead, whether you want to leave it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, Oh, wait, just sorry, go on. Oh, I should just finish off this um, thing. So, um, yeah, basically the reason is because you've got two massive engines on and it's going so fast that there's, it's used a lot of fuel and yeah, any kind of um, accident is going to be pretty fatal. Mm. Should we do some stuff quickly on lasers? Mm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what the world's largest laser is? No. Right. Uh, the world's biggest laser. Uh, it was made in Osaka University in Japan, uh, and it has the power of 2,000 trillion watts. That's two petawatts. Uh, and it's a very short amount of time that it does it, and that's a billion times more powerful than uh, floodlights in a f- football stadium. Uh, it's about the same as all the power that the sun gives to London every year. Whoa. Whoa. And what they do with that is they fire it for a very small amount of time on some matter and it turns it into plasma. And plasma is what we think, it's a state of matter, and it's what we think 99% of everything in the universe is made out of. Uh, but we can't really make it on Earth because it's quite hard to make unless you use this massive laser. Well, so we're just trying to turn the remaining 1% into plasma as well. <laughs> The poor, desperate 1% still clinging on. That's very cool. Um, Can I tell you about my favourite laser Mm -hmm. out there? Uh, It doesn't exist yet. It's been proposed, but I I would love it if this was made. So there's a lot of debate about the fact that we're transmitting stuff into space. And people like Stephen Hawking has said, let's stop trying to tell any potential life out there that we're here because they might use us as a resource. It's it's oddly, it it appears in the news a lot. But you have just been seeing Independence Day too. (laughs) It does make sense because of all the life forms in the universe, let's assume there are others, Mm. it's pretty unlikely we're going to be the smartest. 
And you know what happens when smarter so-called communities reach less smart communities. Yeah, the less smart ones get pushed around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I personally experience it every week on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so two astronomers at Columbia University have taken this seriously, and they've developed the idea of two lasers that we would put out into space. And what we would do is we would blast a continuous 30-megawatt laser for about 10 hours once a year. And what that would do is it would cloak us into invisibility from any outside planets that we're looking for light emitting and whatever it is that you look for. It's like an invisibility shield. And it wouldn't use that much energy. It would only use about 70 American homes worth of energy for that one 10-hour blast per year. So just 70 families in America just have to do without television. (laughs) (laughs) No, surely that wouldn't work. What would these aliens think? They've managed to see all the way over to where we are. Yeah. But there doesn't seem to be a planet there, despite the fact that all the gravity of all the other planets seems to say that there is a planet Suddenly, there. Suddenly, their episode of Friends just cuts out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I suppose there's nobody there. Yeah. <laughs> they must have cancelled it. <laughs> I think if they're smart enough to get to kind of look over here, then they're smart enough to realise that that was a trick. That's true, unless they haven't spotted us yet. That's... I thought you were going to say two big lasers, one saying piss and the other one saying off. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andrew Hunter Murray. My fact is that to avoid catching malaria, you should carry a chicken with you at all times. Okay. A live chicken. It can't be a KFC bucket. <laughs> it has to be a live Are chicken. you sure? Is it I, does because it's something to do with molecules that it gives off or something? Yeah, so there have been some scientists from Ethiopia and Sweden who've been doing trials on this, and they're preparing more trials at the moment. They did experiments where they suspended a live chicken in a cage near people sleeping uh, in uh, under a bed net, and they sounds, found. Do they warn the people sleeping, or did those I people wake did, up in yeah. the morning and freak out? <laughs> um, they warned them. Okay. Um, so it's a particular kind of malarial mosquitoes, Anopheles arabiensis, and they it's been discovered they avoid chickens. And so the Amazing. scientists are working on extracting the chemicals from the chickens which give off the chickeny smell. Mm-hmm. And then you'll just be able to spray this around and you won't get malaria, which and is And then you'll huge. smell of delicious wow. chicken. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Then people will start eating you instead. <laughs> <laughs> Worse. Yeah, so this is uh, about how great chickens are and all the things they do for us that we don't Appreciate. give them credit for. Yeah. Yeah, that's really amazing. That's incredible, yeah. Do you know you get some chickens which are half male and half female? Really? Mm. Yeah, and they're split down the middle. All the cells on the left-hand side are male and all the cells on the right-hand side are female. So they have, have, you know, um, coxcombs on one side and sort of big fighting spurs that male uh, uh, cocks have. And on the right, they have much daintier, more hen-like features. Large breasts. Large breasts, yeah. So do they lay half eggs? I (laughs) don't... <laughs> I don't know. That's an amazing question. Oh, <laughs> um, if you're not h- really hungry, but you yeah. do want to <laughs> just eat half an egg. Thank <laughs> God, yeah. got that hybrid chicken. You, but they look different. Their plumage yeah. is completely different. Wow, it's amazing. They're oh called God. bilateral gynandromorphs, aren't they? Yes, they are. And they're. Um, I think you get them in butterflies. I've seen them in butterflies as well. Mm. So half of them look like they're one color, and half of them look like they're another color. I think chickens can change their sex, can't they? I've heard that as well. I remember hearing about a fighting cock once who was a female and then changed their sex halfway through or the other way around. Mm -hmm. But then all the... It was the other way around because then all the cocks would see this 
like hen and think, oh, well, this is going to be easy. But actually, she had all the aggression of a male cock and would just absolutely kill Whoa. her. So it turns out you should pit a fighting hen against a fighting cock. Yeah, but they just don't have that kind of aggression, the hens. Okay. Yeah. Um, and another possible cure for malaria, or sorry, not a cure for malaria, a malarial prevention right. trick is spiders. So... There's a spider that preys specifically on the Anopheles mosquito, which is the jumping spider. And it's been found that they're attracted to smelly socks or smelly human clothes, like smelly underwear. And so there's a thought that you could leave your smelly clothes, just not wash your clothes, leave them in your house, attract jumping spiders into your house. And by having them there, they'll get rid of the malarial mosquitoes. And instead, you'll just be infested with spiders. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't that interesting? Because they used to eat spiders' webs to get rid of malaria. Yeah, they did, didn't they? Which presumably didn't work at all. But Yeah, I don't think um, so. Yeah. Um, they used to give you tablets full of spider's webs. And yes. you would take those and they would help. Whoa. And there was another thing that you you would carry around walnuts, I think. Empty walnuts with little spiders inside them. And that would supposedly stop the uh, malaria from getting you. Of yes. course, none of these works. But I interesting think that was that up till the 20th century in Italy. Yeah. yeah. That they thought the thing would go for the twentieth century, very early twentieth century. They thought the thing, the mosquito, would bite the walnut or the spider inside it. And also, I read that around the same time in Italy, a doctor would sew a live millipede into the clothes of the sufferer without telling the sufferer, and that would also stop them from getting malaria somehow. Wow! So people walking around with live millipedes in their clothes having no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you know that you can, and Japanese students have recently, fertilised a shop-bought chicken egg and grown it into a chick which i thought wasn't possible but what do you mean they they so they bought uh so this was to see if they could grow uh embryo outside of its shell completely oh, wow. and these japanese there's video of this again online and these japanese students literally bought this egg cracked it into a cup fertilized it so they bought the required sperm i guess male sex stuff to fertilize it and then that's just what we call it <laughs> <laughs> And they, yeah, they fertilized it. They covered it with sort of cling film and it grew into a chick. Isn't that weird? Wow. Yes. So you could watch it. You, you could watch all the vessels develop. If you look at the video, you can see this egg that you would fry in a pan turn into that a chick. That is amazing. Chick. That's extraordinary. What? So do they do, no, they don't start as yolk in all cases, right? No, the yolk is the what yolk feeds is them. food, yeah. yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, cool. <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> that we and chickens both eat chicken yolk. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm. Well, we and cows both drink milk. What? (laughs) (laughs) We and sharks both eat fish. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Mind blown, Andy. Yeah, if you look in an egg, there's like a little tiny bit attached to the yolk, and that's what would be the actual true egg. And the rest of it is just for... Well, well, you sometimes get little red bits, don't you, in the yolk? Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of male sex stuff, mm. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so female uh, chickens, they, ha- they have uh, sperm storage tubules, these are called SSTs. They can keep male sperm alive inside them for up to 15 weeks. Whoa. That's cool. Wow. Yeah, it's way longer than mammalian sperm can survive. A lot of yeah. animals that do that, it's so that they have a choice whether to, what's the word? Whether fertilize. Fertilize, yeah. Yeah. Whether yeah. to fertilise or not. Is that true, chickens? It's true of hens. And they can they can eject inferior rooster sperm after sex. Brilliant. They, I want to see that. They generally... <laughs> <laughs> they, generally that. they eject up to 80% of the stuff they receive. Wow. So, no, no, thank you. I want to see a rooster have sex with a hen and go, and that go, was that good for you? And her go, yeah, yeah, it was great. It walks 10 metres down the road and then it gets splattered. And she goes, just kidding, it was terrible. <laughs> Oh, 
Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that all of the sandals worn by the Pueblo people of New Mexico had enough space for six toes. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Did any of them have six toes, or was it just a very bad shoemaker? <laughs> it just couldn't count. Yeah. Um, why, why? Why? So 3% of them had um, six toes, which yeah. is a lot higher than normal. Yeah. Uh, normally, it would be probably less than 1%. And it was the fact that they thought that people with six toes were especially good, and they were revered, and they were thought to be great, and um, they were associated with, with like important rituals and things like that. And so having six toes was good. And so researchers who have looked at the place where they live have found loads of sandals, loads of sandal-shaped stones, loads of pictures of sandals, and all of these have an extra toe. Wow. That's incredible. So that kind of implies that the other 97% were pretending they had six toes. Maybe if they were they all did. wearing six-toed sandals. Yeah, maybe they had like little fake toes that they used to stick on. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of Play-Doh. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just ask, uh, when were they around? Okay, so they, they've been, they're actually still around, the descendants of these people and um, their Hopi uh, Native Americans are supposed to be descended from them um, but these particular times they're t- looking at an area of a canyon in New Mexico and they were living around 700 AD 800 AD so okay. just over a thousand years ago okay and the other thing is that they found that it's about three percent of the population um, had six toes but it could be actually that it wasn't that high. The bodies that we find are ones that have been especially buried uh, and it might be just the more revered people who have been buried. So maybe they had a normal incidence of toes but we just know about them more because we only see the the special people. Yeah. Okay. They found a skeleton, haven't they, where the, the foot which has six toes has a special ornamental anklet worn around it as if to say, check out my six toes. Oh. And the <laughs> other foot which has only got five toes on it has no such decoration. No. There's more another strut of evidence oh, to the okay. idea that this was a revered trait. Yeah. You know how you're saying it might attract the opposite of sex? Yeah. Um, Not the opposite of sex. <laughs> oh, the opposite of the opposite of sex. <laughs> sex. <laughs> But is there anything in, in genetics that if your mum and dad had six toes that you're in any way likely to yes. inherit yes. six toes? Yeah, yeah. Really? Oh, it's, it's a totally genetic, genetic trait, yeah. So we could actually just, within one generation, make new different humans? I mean... If we forced six-toed and six-toed people to breed with each other in a kind of weirdly awful dystopian way, I guess we could. Yeah, but if we but decided could... it was more practical for humans going forward to have six toes, we could actually just do that within... Well, it takes a long time. It doesn't. Yeah. I don't think in <laughs> one generation you're not going to have to... Like, clerks don't need to worry. <laughs> um, you know who else has six fingers? Um, pandas. Oh, yeah. They, they have two all thumbs, have this they? sort of extra little thummy protrusion on the opposite side from their first thumb. Right. And it helps yeah. them to grip bamboo and it helps with support and things like that. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Is it that it's not really a true finger? They call it a pseudo thumb. Yeah. I think yeah. it's. It's like a bony protrusion, isn't it? Exactly, so you can't yeah. wiggle it. It's thumb like, but yeah. they can't. Yeah. But it serves the purpose that a thumb would be able to serve, doesn't it? It grips. It's I think dripping. people have said that if, if we were to pick a sixth digit that another thumb on the other side will be the best one to have that would be fantastic yeah um if you do lose a a finger or a thumb you could get a toe transplanted which is quite common now a quite a common treatment for losing a finger it's mostly to replace thumbs isn't it it's mostly to replace thumbs i I quite like this interview with the guy who had it done who said there's an operation which involves two surgical teams one is to lop off the toe and the other is to prepare the thumb area to have the toe attached and he said afterwards the worst part of it was them taking the toe off as 
which seems quite obvious to me that that would be the worst part, <laughs> as opposed to them putting it onto the hand. Mm, but this was first nice. done in 1897 by this Austrian surgeon called wow. Karl Nicoladoni, who, and it wasn't as successful, but it did it did work in that he was able to turn a toe into a thumb, and he did it by connecting the man's thumbless hand to his foot. So the man had to. <laughs> Wait a minute, Wait, they've done that what? the wrong way, haven't they? <laughs> I think if you're going to replace your thumb with a toe, what you want to do is take the toe from the foot and put no. it on your hand, not yeah. take your hand and. Put it down there. No, that's what he had to do because he had to get the toe sort of used to being on the hand (laughs) before he detached it from the foot. So the man had to go around for a long time. Because if you put the toe on someone's hand, he's going to go, oh, it's so high up here. (laughs) (laughs) They've got to get used to it. Like this hand's just coming to stay for a while. Wait, the guy's so come down to, like to meet the in-laws, basically. <laughs> yeah. Just to, like, <laughs> what exactly did it, did the guy have to do? He right. had to put his Here's hand... what the guy had to do. He had to bend over, have his thumbless hand sewn onto his big toe, and then that allowed the big toe to get accustomed to being sewn onto deta- the hand. The big toe wasn't detached. No, the big toe wasn't detached. So the man had to <laughs> so spend a few weeks bent just... over with his hand attached to his foot. Yes. And <laughs> so with people we'd like, come on, Jeff, we're off. He's like, I'm just tying my shoe. I'll be there in a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You've been tied your shoe for three weeks, Jeff. <laughs> but it won't do you any good in terms of acclimatizing, surely, if your toe is still attached to your foot. Well, it's apparently it, it, it did work. What I can see Not is brilliantly, that you might works. you might attach the blood vessels, for instance. Yeah, and they need to. They might be still attached in one place, but also mm. attached in the other place. I, can I see think that. that was it. Yeah. If you look at images online of people who've had their thumbs replaced by toes, it's pretty easy to miss yeah, yeah. You, c- you could very easily um, meet someone talk to them shake their hand and not notice that this replacement is done it's so it's, it, yeah. is, it is one of the most amazing operations do you think you'd mention it if you saw someone and you thought that looked like <laughs> that looked like a toe on no, their hand no because it's the embarrassment it's like saying to a woman that you think she's pregnant yeah. and she might not be you can't say oh you've had that operation <laughs> Um, what you were saying, Anna, about um, putting your thumb on your toe, it reminds me of... In the and shoulders, <laughs> knees and thumbs, knees and thumbs. We've got to do it because Barry's here today and just all sing along. <laughs> so go on, James. It reminds me of um, in the olden days when they used to do have a nose job. Mm-hmm. So you had to have a new nose put on there and they would put skin from your arm to kind of reconstruct the nose. Mm-hmm. But you had to have the blood supply from your arm at the same time as it's growing on your nose. So you used to have your arm attached to your face while the skin would grow over your nose. So you would have people whose arm is attached (laughs) to their nose for like weeks on end. And there was one famous guy in Italy, I think, uh, who had this done, but he didn't want to be having his arm over his nose the whole time. So he had his servant's arm used (laughs) instead. (laughs) (laughs) And so his servant had to walk around with his arm over his boss's nose the whole time. Yeah. Wow. That's harsh. I hope the servant never washed his hands to get him back. (laughs) Just on toes, have you guys heard of the World Toe Wrestling Championships? No. No. It takes place in the UK and it's an annual event. The current champion is Alan Nasty Nash. Uh, He won it in 2015. I'm not sure if the 2016 event has happened. But it's basically exactly what it says it is. It is just toe wrestling. Um, and they treat it very seriously. Each toe is inspected uh, prior to... Make sure it's not a thumb. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so the contestants have their toes examined by a qualified nurse before giving, being given clearance that it's a, an unmodified toe and that it can, and that it can do it. And, it. and it was invented basically by four guys who were drinking and just so annoyed <laughs> that the UK uh, just was never good at winning international sports. So it was never just a champion who was from the UK. So they thought, let's, let's invent a new sport. Yeah, um, it's only a matter of time before we teach the um, continent how to play this game and they come yeah. over and start beating <laughs> yeah, Exactly, yeah. Do they have weight categories in toe wrestling? Well, they so is it is it you know little toe v little toe? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always big toe v big toe, isn't it? Okay. Yes, and it's also um, it's also men versus men, women versus women. So um, there's no there's no plucky second toe which took on a big toe because that is a screenplay waiting to be written. But uh, you can watch videos online, and they all come across like WWF wrestlers. They take it really seriously, and so some of the people in the top hundred at the moment, you do have. There are not a hundred people who do this. <laughs> Sorry, maybe just top players. <laughs> there might be a hundred. Alan Nasty Nash, mm-hmm. uh, as I mentioned before, current champion. Uh, Tom Hundred Meter Martin, and then there's a guy called Paul Beach, whose nickname is Terminator. Oh, nice. very, good. very good name. Good it sounds like what happens when the characters out of This Little Piggy went to market grew up. <laughs> I think that's what they're all doing now. This what little a, piggy a, went wrestling. Uh, <laughs> this little piggy became a thumb. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James at Eggshaped, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, and Shazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at QI Podcast, or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com, where we have all of our previous episodes. Just got one more bit of news to tell you, which is that as of this week we have changed over to Audio Boom. Audio Boom, you probably know, hosts a bunch of awesome podcasts and that's where we're going to be now. If you listen to us via SoundCloud, this might be the last episode that you hear on there and you're going to have to find somewhere else, some other app to download our show on. If you do listen to things like iTunes or anything like that, if that's where you get our show from, don't worry, it's going to be exactly the same. You don't need to push any other buttons. This is just specifically for the SoundCloud people. That's it from the show. Off with the show. Off with the show. The show. <laughs>